All right, so we're into Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, I was sitting there uh, looking at, looking over the scripture this morning, and um, there is a, a pattern that, as the author of Hebrews deals with the priesthood and the sanctuary uh, and the offerings, that he, he basically tracks along the same line that those things are developed in the Old Testament. So if you, uh, if you were to go back into the Old Testament, into the book of Exodus, so in the book of Exodus you have the establishment of the covenant on Mount Sinai, and then after the giving of the ordinances, and then Moses was given a, a framework and uh, a, uh, a vision or a pit picture of the tabernacle that they were to construct, and so you have that. And so as they begin to, to uh, construct the elements of the tabernacle, uh, God endows artisans and workmen with the spirit in order to fashion all of the items of the tabernacle according to the vision that Moses was given on Mount Sinai. So you have the tabernacle constructed. Uh, then you have the, the offerings, the different offerings specified. Then you have the priesthood named, the priesthood uh, set apart and sanctified, and then once the priesthood is set apart and sanctified, now you have also the, the, uh, the sanctification of, of, the, uh, of the tabernacle and of the instruments in the tabernacle. So the author of Hebrews, as he moves through this, pointing out that, that the priesthood of Christ is a better priesthood, it kind of tracks along the same way. Uh, you know, the, the offering, the priesthood, and now we're moving into the sanctification of the tabernacle. And so I'm going to leave you with some questions tonight because um, I, I, want, I want you all to take this week and, and, and look at some things here because there's an, there's a, an interesting question that arose in my mind as, as we get into the text. Uh, I don't know if we'll get there tonight, but definitely for sure last week that it very, very, it's very clear here in Hebrews chapter 9 that the, the earthly sanctuary uh, needed to be set apart and, and, uh, and sanctified by blood, not because the sanctuary itself was sinful, but because the sanctuary was in a very real way in contact with the sinful people. And so if you were to go back to Ezekiel, I'm not sorry, um, where is it? I don't have it here. It's in Leviticus, I believe, chapter 14. You'll see the, uh, the injunction to that uh, the high priest was to take some of the blood of the goat and of the bull and to sprinkle, sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for it. Okay, Not because the elements themselves were sinful, but because it's relative proximity to, to sinful man. And so uh, very clearly we'll see here tonight or tomorrow that the earthly tabernacle was a what is called a copy and a shadow of, of the true tabernacle. And, and so it goes on and makes a statement we'll read here in a little bit that the, that the, the earthly tabernacle was 
was sanctified by the blood of bulls and goats, but the heavenly tabernacle required to be sanctified by something more precious. So that brings the question to mind, okay, so I think it's pretty easy to figure out how the heavenly tabernacle was defiled. But the question that arose in my mind is, if the heavenly tabernacle um, is, was defiled at least up until at least up until the time that Christ made atonement with his blood for the heavenly tabernacle, then where was God in all of this? How could God dwell in such a place if it was defiled? And so I started thinking about that, uh, and I started looking at different, different, uh, different passages in Scripture, uh, and I found some interesting things there. And I think that, that uh, once you do this homework, uh, and um, what I'm coming up with that we will inevitably come to a conclusion that I think that will surprise all of us here. So, but that's for next week. So uh, I'm just going to pick it up again at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll move on from there. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tab tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail now when these things had been thus prepared the priests went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services you see how it's tracking the tabernacle is prepared now the priests go in set it apart and begin the ministry uh, okay verse 7 but into the second part the high priest went alone once a year not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating that uh, this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience concerning only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. Okay, so these 10 verses we already covered in our last session. So we're going to move on now and, uh, and, and see how far we can get. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle made, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for purifying the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Okay, so that's the text. Let's go into our notes here a little bit. And uh, I'm going to skip that introductory part and uh, switch, go over to page two in the notes under main point two, where it says a better sacrifice. And so there are some, there are some phrases there. Uh, we, read, we read in the in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, that the, this, whole, this whole episode of the, of the priests going into the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement and, and even the tabernacle of it itself was something that was symbolic. When you look at that word symbolic, it actually, it actually translates to it was a, a physical parable, right? There's, and what is the purpose of parables? Uh, if, you've, if you've studied the Bible at all or taken a course on Bible study methods, what is, and even according to Jesus, what is the purpose of parables? That's right. That's right. It's both to disclose and to shroud. So it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a hidden teaching that's in and around the whole, the whole Levitical worship system, the whole Aaronic worship system, including the tabernacle. It's, it's, it was symbolic. It was meant to teach something uh, to those who would come afterward who God would enable to understand uh, the, the deeper meaning or the sublevel, the sublevel of the text. So it says it was a parable. It says that it was external only. It could not deal with the heart and the consciousness of sin until the time of the Reformation had come. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So here we have the introduction of this idea that, that the, the physical tabernacle uh, that God commanded Moses to construct uh, is, is a, a physical representation of something that is not part of this creation. It stands outside of it, okay? And so there's something there for us to see and there's something there for us to to uh, to learn. So he came of his own accord. The true tabernacle. It stands outside. It's it's apart from this creation. It's part of right. It's part. It's right. It's part of 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 well, therein lies. So that, that's where we start getting into some interesting things when we take a look at it. And we're going to start looking at some other verses here um, that I want you to write down and take home and consider very clear, really, really ponder them. And then when we get together next week, we'll talk more about them. So this, there is a tabernacle in, in, a, in the realm. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to use this terminology it, that exists outside the three-dimensional realm. Okay, there is a tabernacle, right? And I'm kind of just following, you know, the, um, 
the rabbis say that there are three heavens, right? And so you have the, the atmospheric heaven, and then you have the celestial heaven, and then you have the, the third heaven, which is the abode of God or the spiritual realm. So there exists in the spiritual realm this tabernacle uh, of which the earthly tabernacle stands as a physical representation for the purpose of teaching something to those whom God has enabled to, to see, hear, and understand the teaching. But here's the thing. God doesn't give away these kinds of secrets easily, right? And so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll talk more about this. Okay. So of the good things to come means it's right on the threshold of arriving. It's going to happen anytime now, and it won't be long. So I've given you there, you know, just some references. Isaiah 55 talks about the time the mountains and the hills will sing at our revelation. The trees will clap. Then I've, I put this, inserted this, because this has brought a question to my mind. Um, turn for a moment to Psalm chapter 55. And this is not really related to what we're talking about, but uh, I found it interesting and I just wanted to get your opinion on it. In Psalm 55, verse 23, but you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. And here's the part that I want to talk to you about. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So is that true? Is that true in our time? That bloodthirsty and evil men don't live out half their days? It's not true, so it must be referring to a future time. Now, if you were to go to Isaiah chapter 65, now jump there for a moment. Now, Isaiah chapter 65, uh, starting from verse 13 on, is now a description of the millennial, the millennial environment. Okay, so in the millennium, so, so first of all, when you, when, you, when you look at the book of Revelation, you see that, that uh, by the time Christ comes again, the earth has pretty much been decimated. There's not much left of the earth that's habitable, right? The, uh, the, the oceans have been turned to blood. You know, the, the, uh, the rivers and the streams have been turned to blood, right? There have been all kinds of, of uh, cosmic strikes of, of, uh, of meteor. And, and when you follow the trajectory, it actually seems like what God is doing is by, by destroying progressive pieces of the earth, he's kind of hurting the population that's living to the area that seems to be exempt from most of that destruction, and that is the Middle East. And he's herding them there to prepare for and to mass for the Battle of Armageddon. And judgment, and judgment right? And so at the end of the, by the end of all this, the earth is pretty much decimated, and, and, but the earth is reconstituted, right? And so if you, if you, there is a, 
between the end of the Great Tribulation and the official start of the millennium, there's this thing called the 75-day interval, right, which involves the cleansing of the temple, which I think actually means the destruction of that temple that's standing because that third temple is not sanctioned by God, right? Right? So the earth is reconstituted, and so in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 13 and on, we're reading the description of things that will take place during the millennial kingdom in the reconstituted earth. Okay, so having said that, look at what it says in verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So what that verse seems to be saying is that, so we know that in the millennium, uh, there are going to be believers, right? There'll be resurrected believers. There are going to be living believers who enter into the millennial kingdom as regenerate human believers, and they will begin to repopulate the earth. And as they repopulate the earth, they're going to bring forth children who are sinners. Okay, and so what that, what that text seems to be saying is that there will be a hundred year span in which that person has the opportunity to receive Christ by faith. You see, and if not, at a hundred years, they're cut off. So that seems to be what that verse in Psalm is referring to. Yeah. So all of this is, is on the threshold of coming. Okay, back to Hebrews chapter 9. On the threshold of arriving. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another reason why, you know, uh, so during the millennium, Christ comes in. First of all, he comes to the Mount of Olives after having having defended the, uh, the tents of Judah in Basra. He comes to the Mount of Olives. He splits it in two. And so the, the Jews who are who at that time will recognize their Messiah. He splits the earth, the mountain in two. And, and, uh, and the Jews will flee through that valley from, from west to east, right? And Christ will come in from the east to do battle against the, uh, the army of the Antichrist, which will be situated on the west side of the city. Okay, so they come in and he, and he does battle and he, and he vanquishes them all and... Uh, and, and we move on from there. Okay, so, so he comes in through the east gate. You can read about this in, in the latter chapters of, of uh, Ezekiel. Comes in through the east gate. Once he comes in through the east gate, that gate is sealed forever. And that portico, whenever you go, you know, the ancient cities, they had a, it wasn't just a gate. You would go in through a gate and there would be a series of rooms off to the side. That series of room was a defensive mechanism because when you had people, strangers coming into the city to do business, you didn't want to let them all the way into the city. So they would come into that portico and there were rooms on the side. 
So that will be closed off, and that will be those closed off porticles now will be the office of the prince. The prince is David. That, those will be his offices. Christ will come in through the east gate, enter the Holy of Holies, and remain there, the Shekinah glory. It's necessary that Christ should remain there. Why? Because in the millennium, salvation is by what? Faith. So how do you, like it is today, right? But if Christ is all over the place, where's the faith in that? Right? Okay. So anyway, uh, all of those things are on the threshold of coming, and, um, and that's what we're looking at here. So it says, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, when he comes, he does not come alone. The true tabernacle will come with him. And this is, and he's called the desire of all nations. Okay. Over on page three. Let me just read that. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. It's every nation which is made up of people have longed, hoped, and bled and cried for, a ruler who is just, compassionate, and merciful, one that truly has the best interests of the people in his heart and mind. They won't be able to bribe him to make unjust laws that oppress the people and cater to the elite. Global conglomerates won't be able to control him like a puppet. His justice will truly be blind to skin color, socioeconomic status. His reign will be righteous in every sense. After a thousand years of this, which is only a prelude, then the wonderful reign will itself come and then we move on into the eternal age the new heaven and the new earth, which is talked about in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. The Holy Father himself will come and reign and live with his people, with a tabernacle not made with hands, not one that is created, rather the eternal tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having attained eternal redemption. Now it's talking about the eternal tabernacle, the tabernacle that is outside of this creation. It's an eternal one. He has entered in as the priest of Melchizedek, as the eternal now forever priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he obtained eternal redemption. Okay. So the earthly high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies only after and with blood. So too the Son of Man as our High Priest, but with his own blood, not to atone for his sins, but for ours, having already obtained eternal redemption. So eternal is not quantity, but quality, degree. In John 10.10, 10, you have that there. Um, Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It works miracles in the here and now. It cleanses our conscience from dead works. Uh, the effect of sin and dead works upon the conscience, right? And so 
So when we are, it, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creation. And that word new there means one that has never existed before. With the coming of, of the new covenant, they're now the redeemed, both redeemed Gentiles and remnant believing Jews. They're called the remnant. Uh, they are a creation that has never existed before. Right? And at that, at that time, your conscience is, I guess you could say, rejuvenated or reconstructed. Right? That doesn't mean you can't sear your conscience as a believer and damage your conscience. You can. So we're given a, a brand new, uh, a, a reconstituted conscience. Right? And it speaks loud and clear. Okay. Our hearts become able to hear and commune with God and to receive daily direction from his spirit. This is what circumcision of the heart and removal of the, so the stony heart prefigures. This is the reason why only Jesus could be the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 9.15 And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the e eternal inheritance. Okay. All right. So here's what I want to do now. So I, I want us to get to thinking about what we're going to cover next in verses 23 to 28. So I want to look at some verses together with you, and I want you to jot down the references, and then I want you to, what I want you to do is I want you to go uh, over this next week and see if you can spot the differences. This, this, sometimes they're subtle differences, sometimes not so subtle differences in, in, the, um, in the text that we're looking at. Okay, <coughs> so let's go back to uh, Leviticus for a moment. Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, uh, this is talking about the Day of Atonement. And if you drop down to verse 16, in Leviticus chapter 16, it's talking about the high priest. So he shall make atonement. And the verses before that uh, delineate how he was to do that. He, so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions. So the, 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 the blood atonement that was required for the tabernacle and all was not because of its sin, but because of its proximity to the sinful people of Israel. Okay, in verse 17, There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself for his household and for all the assemblies. Verse 18, And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Okay, so there you have that taking place. So let's talk about the tabernacle for a moment. All right, 
I'll just draw a little diagram here. So in your mind, what, what, what did the tabernacle look like? Right, we'll start with, we'll start with a square, okay? All right, so you've got the tabernacle, and we'll put it here. Right? The holy place. Here. Most holy. Okay. So what do we have in the... Let's just stop right there. So this would be... So this would be the... In the tabernacle. So if you were to go into the second temple period... That would be the east gate, west gate, south gate, north gate. Well, the, actually, the north gate was a later addition. Uh, so, so you this would be the outer court, inner court. Yep. Right, the labor. We'll do it this way. Altar. Right. Okay. So, now, this is part of the, the, um, the first temple and the second temple period. But in the tabernacle, this was not there. This was the, that's right, this was the camp, right? And so this is where the Israelites camped. Okay, now let's go into the most holy place. What is in the most holy, or was in the most holy? Now mind you, what we're we're looking at something physical, but it's teaching us something about an, a place that is outside of three-dimensional space. Okay? Curtain. Okay? I think that's what it's there because the high priest was was to burn incense on the censer before, before he went in so that it would cover it would shroud so he didn't like reach in yeah okay so now what do we have in in the uh, in the most holy place or the holy of holies okay well we have the ark okay and what else is we have the tape, we have the manna, we have the Aaron's rod that budded, um, the ten tablet, the tablets of stone. Are you talking the tabernacle or the temple? The tabernacle. Okay, now tell me about the ark. We had the mercy seat. Was there anything else notable about the ark? Okay. Cherubim on top. Yeah, there was a gold cover, the mercy seat, two cherubim reaching over and touching the wings on top. Okay, now uh, bear in mind, this is a physical representation of something that exists outside of three-dimensional space. Okay? All right. So hold on to this, right? What? Yes, okay. So hold on to that in your mind. 
Now let's look at these different passages and let's see if you can begin to spot out some things that, that are different than this. Okay, first passage, Ezekiel chapter 1. Okay, so in Ezekiel chapter 1, we have the description of the four living creatures, okay? But what I want you to notice in the description of the four living creatures is their position relative to God's throne. They're what? Underneath. You see that? They're underneath. Okay, now... Look at Revelations chapter 4. Okay. In Revelations chapter 4, now this is the throne room of heaven. Okay, after these things I looked and behold a, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So we're definitely dealing with God's throne here. Okay. Verse 3, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So you're starting to see some similarities here to the description if you were to completely read Ezekiel chapter 1. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, seven lamps of fire which are burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the part that I want you to focus into. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature was like a calf, the third living creature was like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying, fe uh, flying eagle. If you go back and read Ezekiel chapter 1, this is how they're described in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10. Okay, the four living creatures having six wings full of eyes around. Um, uh, full of eyes around and within, they do not rest day or night saying. But notice what it says in verse 6 again. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. So what is their position relative here? They are surrounding. It actually means they, they have formed a perimeter around the throne of God. And in the midst means in close proximity to the throne. So they form a perimeter around the throne and they are in proximity to the throne. Now this is different 
from Ezekiel chapter 1, right? Because in Ezekiel chapter 1, the cherubim were where? Underneath. underneath. Now. Does it make sense? Because in Revelation, there they are uh, a guardian ring around the throne. But in Ezekiel, the throne's up there. And they're right there. Yep. So, so they're a perimeter defense. The only way that we could potentially get to the throne. Uh, right. I'll make my point in a minute. One more passage, Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So here we are. We're, we're, we're back at the throne of God. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, which two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, if you look at the Revelations chapter, <laughs> this is where it gets dicey, and I'll, I'll explain why I think what's going on here. So in the Ezekiel chapter 1 vision, the cherubim have four wings. In the Revelations chapter 4 view, the cherubim have six wings. In Isaiah chapter 6, these beings that are called seraphim, which essentially means burning ones, have six wings. Now, the, I, I, I think that it's referring to the same, same living creatures. And the reason why I think that in the Ezekiel passage, he's only seeing four wings is because his vision in the Ezekiel chapter 1 passage is taking place in three-dimensional space. It's a matter of perspective, whereas the Revelation 4 and Isaiah chapter 6 are taking place in four dimensions, right? According to Ephesians, there are four dimensions. Okay. So what is the main point in all of this? You'll notice in each one of those passages where the throne of God is referenced, the cherubim are in different positions, different positions relative to the mercy seat. Is the mercy seat the throne? If the mercy seat is the throne, then how could it be that God could occupy that throne before the time when Christ came and purified the temple with his blood? But why does it have to be the throne? Isn't the mercy seat where he's the great white throne? So that's what I want you guys to think about and to, and to, look, and to think through over the, over the next week, right? Because I think that we we inevitably have to come to a conclusion that may surprise us when we consider all these things. The reality is, so we know, right? So we know how the temple, we do know how the temple was, was defiled and corrupted, right? In Isaiah chapter 14.
or maybe it's Ezekiel 28. Could be Ezekiel 28. Yes, in Ezekiel 28. Uh, so in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre here is, you'll find this reference at work in Daniel, that there is a reference to the earthly ruler, the earthly king, and the spiritual power behind. So the prince of Tyre here is referring to the earthly human prince. The king of Tyre is referring to the spiritual, the spiritual power behind that wicked kingdom. So in Ezekiel 28 here, it's clearly talking about, it's clearly talking about Satan as the covering cherub. So he was a covering cherub, right? Uh, but it says in verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. That sanctuaries there actually is holy places. So, so his iniquity brought defilement into the space where the mercy seat is in the, t in, the, in the heavenly places. So that's why Christ has to go and make atonement for that with his blood. Well, that poses a bigger problem than the tabernacle being defiled by sin. Because if the heavenly is defiled, I'm sure that he probably does have a plan to work his way into the No, but go ahead, finish your train of thought, because you're getting there. That's right. And therein lies the problem. And, and does God have to wait for it to be pleasant? Well, not only that. Remember, before the sacrifices could be offered that were sanctioned by God, in the earthly tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle had to be atoned for. So give this some thought over the next week because this is pretty deep. This is the parable. See, this is, this is how we dig into the parable that is the tabernacle. I'll give you a clue. What's another, what's another name for the tabernacle in the wilderness? This is a clue. The tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. Follow that. Okay? All right. Yes. So the, the, the mercy seat for that, like we know that Lucifer was one of the, the covering names of the covering cherub. Then does that mean that because we only do have on the mercy seat a true cherub covering, does he have a counterpart? And who is that? Oh, I don't know who he is, but obviously there were there were two. Right? There were two. Mm. Right. The, the, well, there's obviously there's more than two. But two held the highest position. The thing is, is when you look at the passages in the scripture that give you a description of the throne of God, the cherubim are never above the throne, never in proximity to the throne like that. They're always underneath it, around it, or above it, which makes sense because not physically covering the throne, not not performing the function of covering the throne, right? Because the two wings, the, the wings of the cherubim touched each other above the mercy seat, okay? So the clue is to consider this and also consider that, that 
the other name for the tabernacle was the tent of meeting. And what the implications are that Doug stated, how could, if, if, if this is a representation of the throne room of God, and if this, the mercy seat on the ark, represents the throne of God, then how could God inhabit it while it was defiled? So you think he's come to the answer? I think so. I could be wrong, though. That's why I want you guys to study it out, too. But you have an idea. You're, you're leaving us something. Well, I'm, I'm going to the only logical conclusion that you can come to, really. But my logic may be flawed. So that's why and we can have a really great discussion about this, you know. And, uh, you know, the, uh, so it, this is the way we learn and grow, right? We're, we're, look, we're looking at, we're swimming in deep water here, right? And so... Um, it has a real bearing. I mean, I, I think if my conclusion is right, then it really puts a whole another dimension of wow on the atonement of Christ. Okay. Any other questions? All right. Let's see if I have anything to add in the conclusion. Yeah, we'll just finish this off. This is what awaited the Hebrew believers, and this is what awaits us. Avoiding earthly affliction, pain, and persecution worth turning, as it is avoiding, remember, they were thinking of going back to Judaism because they were beginning to suffer persecution. They were, uh, they were being hunted. They were being disowned from their families. They were uh, losing, losing, um, losing all their things. And, you know, I, I, I find on YouTube rabbis, right, who a, a lot of rabbis, they just, they talk stuff that just doesn't make any sense to me, like goat cheese and milk and this and that. But I look for the rabbis who exposit scripture, right? So they, or they, they attempt to exposit scripture. And uh, again, Last week, I, uh, you know, I watched a video of a rabbi who was very emphatic, very emphatic that it's better for a Jewish person to die than to become, to become a convert to Christianity, right? Make no bone, they make no bones about it. So you can imagine what these Hebrew, these Hebrew Christians, the kind of pressure that they were under. Not only that, but they were also, remember, struggling with the whole concept of the Messiah being a man. And not, not, not with the Messiah being a man, but that as a man, his revelation would be higher and more authoritative than, than of angels. Again, I watched the video this week, same rabbi, different teaching. Um, you know, he says something interesting. He said, you know, it's, it's easier to take a Jew out of Egypt than it is to take the Egypt out of a Jew. Right? And the same thing holds true. So he was saying that, that it was really some of it's pretty interesting that that whole exodus thing is a metaphor is a metaphor for the journey that we make out of slavery right and the same thing holds true to the believer it's easier to take the believer out of out of out of egypt than it is to take the egypt out of the believer but he also said that during any given time there are at least two people walking the face of the earth that would qualify to be the Messiah. 
Yep. That's what they believe. So you can see how they would struggle. So they were thinking of going back to Judaism if for a time. Um, but would it be worth it? Think about, you know, the, the things that we endure in this life, you know, and, and uh, um, it would be easy to go back to the, the anesthetics of the world. But is it worth it in the end? Okay. Thank you.